production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Danielle Laporte is an author and spiritual teacher of love. She speaks about the intelligence of the heart and that when you turn into it, you uncondition your mind of all kinds of social programming. Danielle says the intelligence of love dissolves eons of dogma that tells us to prove our worth and sort who's superior or inferior. Being loving doesn't necessarily mean feeling more. It means feeling everything with more love. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss using suffering to get to joy, waking up to our divinity, and how we pour more light onto the world. May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I be free of suffering? May I be free of mental anxiety? May I live in peace? May my life be blessed with ease? I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Danielle is the author of many books, including How to Be Loving, The Desire Map, and Red Hot Truth. At its core, this discussion is how we think about and practice love. Love for others, love for all, and love for oneself. My hope is that this conversation serves as a reminder that healing, transformation, and freedom are possible when you look within. Danielle Laporte, we're going to dive into my favorite topic, which is love. And you say we are born into these imperfect families. And I want to know, how was your upbringing? Awesome and imperfect. Yeah. The hallmark of my upbringing was that I had really young parents. So my mom got pregnant in high school and had to drop out of high school to have me. So she had just turned 18. My dad had just turned 20. And so that was like really defining for me, having cool, young, hip mom and dad. I got toilet trained in the college of my mom's school while she was going to get her bachelor's in social work. Yeah, she took me to school with her. And my dad was a hockey player. 
The other pillar is that my parents were really different. So while my mom was reading Carl Jung and Wayne Dyer, my dad was playing hockey. And you enjoyed your childhood? Yeah, totally. I had a good childhood. I mean, it's not without its traumas and challenges, but I had a sweet, small country life with really cool, progressive parents. Yeah, their their youthfulness was really worked to my advantage, yeah. And I wonder, having a mother that was like that and into such amazing people like Wayne Dyer and Jung, what did that teach you about the world? I think what I came out of that with was that there was more than one way to do things. Mm. And it was really to my benefit to have so much contrast in my life, like the really different parents and then having a mom who was doing all this progressive psych stuff uh, with kind of a side of a hippie lifestyle while I was in Catholic school, really getting indoctrinated. It just taught me that there were other ways to do things. Mm. Do you still practice Catholicism now and has religion been a part of your life? Religion has been a big part of my life. I don't practice any organized religion now. Christianity has deeply informed my worldview Mm. in a good way. I consider Jesus the Christ to be really an aspirational human along with lots of other aspirational humans. Thich Nhat Hanh to Lao Tzu, and there's a list. The warmth and the heart-centeredness of the teachings of Jesus, that really, really work for me. Mm. And I've explored lots of stuff, logged lots of hours on in Buddhist meditation classes. And really, I come back to the heart time and time again. As I think, you know, all mystics do. Yes. Not that I consider myself a mystic, but yeah. How did you get into Buddhism? I was just part of the trip of what's this over here? And ooh, someone gave me a Pema Chodron book. It's one of my favorite Buddhist nuns. I was 30 something, maybe mm-hmm. just 30, living in San Francisco, and someone gave me the wisdom of no escape. And I just like, wow, this is it. This is clear thinking. Yeah. And I swam in that for a while. And it's still part of my my approach to a lot of things. It's really baked into how to be loving the new book. Mm. I listen to your story and I feel that you pick up bits and pieces along the way as I do in my journey. I studied Kabbalah when I was young because that was part of the religion that I was born with. But then, you know, I pick up a Jack Cornfield book and, and next minute I'm absolutely engrossed in, into Buddhism or I follow the work of Rumi, who is a Sufi poet, and then I'm loving that. And Jesus, the teachings of him are just extraordinary, I agree. And I love A Course in Miracles. And there are just so many beautiful things that we can pull from. And we'll dive into a lot of your work in a moment. But when we talk about Buddhism, what was it that drew you to Buddhism? Was there something in particular? Yeah, I'd love to know what it was. 
hyper-intellectual, depending where it's delivered from. It's very heady. So that worked for me for a while, really from my own ego, which is like accumulating knowledge. Just look at sort of the structure of Buddhism and all its different schools. The body of work is stunning. So I just wanted to just eat it up. And that was from like an unhealthy side and a healthy side. And compassion at the center. Compassion at the center Mm. is magnetic for me. Yeah. I've heard you say feeling great is not the final destination. Being love is the final destination. And you talk about this in your new book, How to Be Loving. Can you talk to us about that? I realized that me being in a good mood uh, had very little to do with feeling connected to something higher than myself. My deeper fulfillment, feeling like I'm doing something purposeful and meaningful. I'm expanding, I'm learning, I'm growing. Wasn't about necessarily being happy that day. (laughs) Or I could be feeling off. I could be feeling collapsed, contracted, angry. And I was still able to be useful. And by useful, I mean, I could still be a loving friend. I could still be a compassionate parent. My love could actually transcend my emotions and my feelings. Mm. Someone just asked me a couple of weeks ago, I have this heart-centered membership. And one of the women asked me, how do I be loving when I don't feel like it? Yeah. And I just like, "Ah, that's it. Because that is spiritual maturity. That's expansion. When you love, you do the aspirational, virtuous, higher vibration thing, even though you don't feel like it, mm-hmm. like your emotionality is saying, well, give and take. And here's all the reasons I should be angry and my mood and the sugar and all the stuff. You just stay centered and you make the loving move. And that is the difference between, I think that's the difference between being pulled out by your feelings a hundred times a day and having a lot more peace and really being, you know, the mother, the divine leader of your own day. I want to explore that a bit more. How do we be loving but still stick up for ourselves when we're in a situation where it could be a work situation where someone is not nice and maybe time and time again just has it in for you and is throwing narky things and you're trying to be loving but it ain't getting anywhere. What would you do in a situation like that? Mm, Depends. There's a few things to do. One is that this is the first thing to do. How is that person a reflection of you? Mm. Just like start there with like a universal principle. So the attacking, the belittling, how are you attacking yourself? How Or how are you actually attacking them? And that there's going to be some clarity. There'll be some softening of the mind, like the antagonism or the victim mentality starts to kind of chill out. You can think a little more clearly. So first I think it's radical responsibility without self-criticism. And that is some tricky stuff. I think lots of us can get to radical responsibility. Like, okay, wow, I really have a part in this. You have to pause there because a lot of times what happens after that is 
wow, I really have a part in this and I'm not that evolved and I'm a bit of a loser and I got to get it together. And all these reasons were not that spiritual. Just don't even go there. Just like, I have a part in this. I'm observing this. I'm spacious. I can be gentle. I can be relaxed with this observation. I'm responsible for my behavior. I'm going to give myself some credit for having the insight. And then you decide what the next best move is to do. Mm. I think our responsibility is to create conditions of healing for ourselves. So what would someone who cherishes you tell you to do? They might tell you to tell your boss to go pound sand and you need to quit because it's actually abusive. It's not great for your nervous system. It's keeping you constricted. Or the most loving person might tell you, you know what, why don't you start speaking to yourself and them in a more gentle tone? And there's an evolution there. The loving act towards yourself might have you just let the other person be. Maybe you've got enough patience enough insight to just let somebody off gas for a while. Maybe your boss, maybe they're in the middle of a divorce and you can put up with some shit for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and you can ride it out instead of getting over boundaried. Boundaries are essential. Got to have them. They're developmental. A lot of people I see though right now are becoming excessively boundaried, ego-centered boundaries yeah. instead of heart-centered boundaries. And it's It's a real problem. I've noticed that as well. I think we have buzzwords and things that we do in life. And I Mm. feel that boundaries is one of those where people are like, I'm putting up my boundaries. Are those boundaries working for you? Are they actually making life easier for you? You know, when you put up a boundary and then you regret putting up the boundary? Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because... Sometimes I think these things, even though they are definitely good in a lot of areas, they can be quite glorified. Mm -hmm. That's a great way of putting it. I know that you talk a lot about witnessing the feelings, not dissimilar to what we were speaking about before, not letting yourself over-identify with them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. I think the clearest way to talk about one's feelings is to start with love and the misperceptions around love. We tend to think love is a feeling or an emotion. It it isn't. Love is, love doesn't come and go. Love isn't dispensable. It's not dependent on your mood, what you've eaten or how somebody speaks to you. You just are love. You embody love. It's a higher consciousness. It's a heightened state of being. It's a higher frequency. It's not dependent on all the emotional stuff. So that means that we're not our feelings. This is where Buddhism comes in really handy. In How to Be Loving, I use the visual of the sky a lot. This is a nod Mm. to Buddhism. They talk about your true nature, your divine nature, your Buddha nature being like the sky. And I think that metaphor is meant to actually shake us up and kind of blow our mind because it's like your divinity, your real energy, your soul is that vast. You are that unlimited. It's amazing to think Mm -hmm. of. I've got that much love. I've got that much truth. I have that much energy. It's endless. It wraps around the atmosphere. Like, yes, it's mind blowing. If your true nature is that environment, that spaciousness, then your feelings 
are just the clouds coming and going. Lots of Buddhists talk about mm. this. I mean, it's still very conceptual to say you're not your feelings, but okay, so you're in a heated argument or you're sad or you're scared. Where that can be really helpful is you can just be like, I created this fear. I created this sadness. I can hold it. It will pass through. It doesn't have to ruin my day. It doesn't have to define my brand or my reputation. This is coming and going. And I'm the consciousness behind the coming and going. And if I'm the consciousness behind that, if I'm the love behind the emotions, then I can use that awareness to choose different feelings, mm. to choose different thoughts. I don't have to stay angry. I don't have to play small. I can choose thoughts that just keep reminding me, ah, actually, I'm pretty magnificent. I'm pretty capable. I'm pretty loving. It's an interesting thing when you see people that really embody love. And I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. I might not even realize that they're doing it, but they just have this way about them. You just want to be near them. It's this extraordinary aura of someone that you just want to be around. And I mean, we obviously, mm -hmm. the sages, that was the main thing. They just embodied love. The real gurus in India, I have heard Ramdas talking at length about being with his guru and it was just this embodiment of love that he could feel and and they didn't even talk. He just sat there and he just felt this extraordinary, overwhelming feeling of love. Obviously, that is one thing. But as I said, the people that every day that we're just attracted to. And I wonder for you, since you have learnt all about love and you're a teacher now of love, how has that changed your life, being more loving? sleep better. My digestion's better. All the things. It doesn't mean that life is necessarily without challenge, right? And I'm far from enlightened. So there's still lots of lessons that come to me. Sometimes I feel blindsided by them. It's just like, ooh, it's a little dense and ignorant over there. So like, I really needed that wake up call to come for me lovingness and getting better at embodying love a little bit more every day is a lot better for my nervous system. My connections with people are more intimate, like real conversations. Mm. I am way less judgmental than I used to be towards myself and other people. This is when it's on a good day, when it's working. I still have lots of judgment and I still have lots of authority issues. <laughs> and I can get pretty pissed off pretty quickly. Um, but more often than not, I feel connected. I feel like we just met and I just feel like, wow, Sarah's happiness. I want everybody to not suffer. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing. I would love you to speak about this because I know about four to five years ago, you went through a really hard time. And I think it would be interesting for the audience to hear because sometimes when we look at someone as a teacher and then we hear that they also, not that long ago, went through shit, it, it's like, wow, none of us are immune to it. I've interviewed Joe Dispenza a couple of times and he always talks about how I actually feel it for myself too, from my learnings and where I am now, the time that it takes me to get over things is still less. I still go through crap, as he was saying, but the time to flip back to normality is so much faster than what might take two days now or a day or a few hours, may have taken six months before. 
Yeah. And the wreckage isn't as severe. Yes. You might notice. Yes. There's just not as much drama with it. You don't pull people into the pain with you as much. It's like, wow, okay, I can work through this. Mm. And you do process things more, I find as well. I'm with you. You process things more quickly. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what happened to you in that dark night a few years ago. Yeah. Well, let me talk for a second about the definition of dark night. There were lots of things I went through before that I thought were rough, like divorce, no fun, miscarriage, not great, business difficulties, getting fired from my own company. And I would think, oh, there's a dark night of the soul. Yeah. No, no. Those are challenging <laughs> and defining. But when I really went through it, true to my personality. I was like, I'm just going to research the shit out of dark night of the soul. And what I was experiencing and what I saw in the teachings of other mystical scripture was the characteristic is there's this dissolution. You really don't know who you are anymore. You are not sure who you're going to be on the other side. You are really being all your, all your constructs are being called into question and burned down. Yes. Am I this kind of mother? Is this the right career? Is this the right faith? It's very discombobulating. It's dark. And how that showed up for me was I started having panic attacks and anxiety, which I had never had as in my forties. And I remember talking to my psychotherapist, explaining to her, what was happening for me physically. And she said, Danielle, this is a panic attack. And I was like, what? She's like, you know, you're having anxiety waves. And I was like, what? I don't even identify as an anxious person. I have, these are my exact words. I have no relationship to anxiety. And she said, Danielle, you've been managing low-grade anxiety your whole life by being an overachiever, just always working. Why, Why be still and deal with the agitation under the surface? Deal with the darkness that's propelling all the striving when you can just keep striving and keep achieving and keep, you don't even need to be achieving. You don't even need to be getting results. Just keep doing and and stay in motion. And all the stuff that's in the basement of your psyche asking for attention, you just keep overriding it until you can't anymore. Until everything underneath says, you've got to stop and you've got to look at me. Mm. I'm anxious and I'm afraid and I have authority issues and abandonment issues. The practicalities of that for me was I created a voice memo for my team and I was just such a mess. I wasn't hysterical, but I was in and out of tears just saying like, I can't work right now. I'm so sorry. There's so much guilt in that. I don't know how long this is going to last. I remember becoming particularly emotional saying like, I don't know if this is going to be a couple of weeks or a couple of years and then really crying. But you and Jesus are going to have to take the wheel for me right now. And I can just show up when it's critical. Meaning like there was something I had to do online and show my face. I could pull it off. And then I would get back to crying and being anxious. And I spent a lot of time by myself, even though that was scary at the time, because I'd gone from this. This is part of the disintegration. I love my solitude love it, love being alone. And I couldn't be left alone. I was afraid to be left alone. I was having suicidal ideation in the morning. I thought my son was younger. 
I thought I will get him up and going. It's going to take me about five years and then kill myself because I cannot do five years beyond five years of this. It was pretty dark. And the medicine to just boil it down, it was gentleness. It was that simple and it was that profound. I had to be gentle with what I was experiencing. No criticism for where I was at. Every day, so tender with myself. I treated myself like a five-year-old for many, many, many weeks. Just needed to eat good, be quiet, no pressure to do anything, sleep, journal, therapy. I created vignettes, little altars, tiny altars around my house of visual things that were comforting for me. I had one in my living room of just particular cards. I put a doll up there, a little rosary, some flowers, just to remind me, just gentle beauty. Put one in my bedroom. Carried stones around, not crystals, just stones, just a rock. I'd find a rock and be like, oh, nature, this is God. I'd carry it in my pocket. And my relationship to nature. I would say, actually, that was on par with gentleness. I totally leaned on the mother. Yeah. How was your relationship to the divine at that time? Great. <laughs> Unshakable. Never closer. Mm. And this is the teaching of suffering, is you are closer to God when you get on your knees. The begging to have the pain relieved. I was in the woods one night. I, I spent a few weekends at this small Catholic retreat center. They took anybody, so they took <laughs> me. And I just would go out at night in the woods and sob on the ground and beg for relief, talk to the moon, talk to the trees. And then was it a slow, I'm imagining in my mind, a mist that slowly just softened and, and faded over time? Yes. It's a great description. Another important part of this was I had to get my chemistry right. So working with my psychotherapist, she's, you know, my psychotherapist's name is Ann Davin. And her terminology was, this is a living death. It's like, you got it. That's it. A living death. And she said, this is chemically informed as well, Danielle. You got to go get your hormones in shape. And that's one thing I did very early on in the falling apart. Go get your blood work done. See where your cortisol levels are mm. and your estrogen and your testosterone. For me, I was super out of whack. The perpetual stress and striving over the years just really moved me into adrenal fatigue. And when you're in that place, your hormones are just going to be out of whack, yeah. which is going to lead to all sorts of stuff. And I did everything I needed to do to get that in shape and get on the right supplements and reduce the stress, all the things. That takes some time. That takes a couple months. But yeah, as you said, it was a slow mist. And then there was very much a commitment to like, Never go back there again.
after going through that? What are the practices that you use day to day? Because I know there have been times and nothing in comparison to your story where I've had these moments or months of, of real anxiety. And it's interesting, Danielle, you end up just, for me, going back to what I know best. Meditation, as you said, journaling, prayer. I know this sounds cliche, but it actually worked at the time. I was going to fix myself and this is what I needed. And when I said the slow miss thing, it reminded me of myself during that time where slowly I started, slowly started fading. And then one day it wasn't there at all. And I I swore to myself as well, I never want this to come back again. And as we do, we learn so much from those times. Yeah. The same tools that I used in crisis are the same tools that I use every day. That was one of the big learnings. Uh, Let's do more of this more steadily. So I meditate every morning. My relationship to meditation has shifted. I meditate in a very active way. It's kind of, there's things that I, I want to accomplish with my meditation practice. That's not for everybody. That only works for me because I also have a lot of contemplation built into my life. For me, there needs to be lots of stillness. So there's lots of nature. There's lots of introspection. So that staying connected to friends, relationships, so medicinal, radically simplifying my spiritual practices. This was a source of anxiety for me. And this is really, it's so insidious and hard to see when you identify as being on the spiritual path in this wellness space. But I was thinking the more meditations, plural, that I do, the better. Mm -hmm. The longer I meditate, the better. Let me ingest one more book. Let me participate online in one more workshop, more, more, more. Actually, I became really clear some of these things were actually creating anxiety for me because I was just never feeling evolved enough. There were so many practices. I mean, it becomes, I'm doing all these practices. I barely have time for myself. Yes. And, and I could see how what was really happening and so much of that was I was rejecting my humanity. The most, quote, spiritual thing I've ever done is to see the beauty of being human. I have a body. It is of God. It's okay to make my body a priority. And at the same time, know that I am not my body. I was just really identifying with the spirit of things instead of the material of things. And until you honor the material, you're missing the spiritual. I really got there. Things I don't do, I'm not a journaler. I'm no longer participating in therapy. I love my therapist. They saved my life. I've had many over this lifetime. It's not because I've reached a particular level. It's just not part of my toolkit anymore. I want to get beyond the psychology and more into the metaphysics of my being. Yeah. That's so interesting. I know that you've simplified your life a lot since then. And I wonder if you could talk to us about how you've done that. Well, when the world started to fall apart about three years ago, I started asking some really deep questions. I mean, my intuition was this is going to be big and far-reaching and last for years. 
And I'm going to ride this opportunity. This opportunity for growth does not come along (laughs) in every lifetime. And so I asked about my mortality. I asked myself and life about my career and about wanting to be partnered and all those things. And while I was asking those questions and letting go of, I just thought, we're going through this really tight portal right now. And the golden age really is being born through us. But we, we've got to let go of some baggage, old ways, old structures. So in an interior way, I started doing the work of who do I need to forgive? What do I need to forgive within myself? So there was that, and that was deep and beautiful. But then the simplifying extended to my physical life. I let go of my house and I had a fucking great car. And I'm not living like a monk now, but I radically simplified. I got rid of two thirds of my possessions and all my shoes, some great I got rid of these incredible boots that I actually bought in Melbourne. Oh, really? (laughs) That I would do anything to get back on the airplane with. I'm like, I need to let these boots go. (laughs) And I moved into an apartment. And then part of this is I want to be closer to the beach and I want to be close to the woods. So there were some lifestyle changes, but let go of a lot of stuff. I transitioned some of my team, helped them go find other jobs. I 86 some of the offerings I was doing in terms of work and membership stuff and really still trying to make simplicity a spiritual practice. It's a real struggle for me because I just love making stuff. Yeah. How was the release of the house and the car and the shoes? How did that feel for you? Was it a shedding almost? Did you feel more empowered on the other side? Oh, yes, absolutely. The simplifying has brought a lot of peace. It's brought a lot of freedom. I use my financial resources for other things. I feel, I feel more real and accessible in a way. Mm. I used to really want to get this $3,000 purse, which is ridiculous. I mean, I feel it's ridiculous. If you want your $3,000 purse, go get it. It was this kind of become this symbol. And I knew what was underneath that. If I walk into a meeting with a publisher or I'm at a gig and I walk into the room with that purse, it says something. Not just I can afford, if I can afford three grand for this purse, then, you know, just imagine what's behind this, the purse as this status yes. symbol. And it just became clearer and clearer. It, it just felt like more of a weight. It felt like, the status stuff felt like a barrier to love, really, if I can be really poetic about it. I just want to have a conversation with somebody. I just, I, I want to walk into a, a meeting with a, a publisher or show up at a gig and not have anything on me that's distracting. And I want to feel the vulnerability, the exposure, the sweetness of just showing up being radiant and kind and curious. I don't need the purse. Not what I'm into anymore. It's a nice thing because 
take the example of the publisher. They like you for you and your work, not for your external. And then if you really think about that, if people are relying on their external, it can just be the way that they look, for them to be liked and wanted, that only lasts so long and then it's fleeting. And when I think about love and especially unconditional love, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, that's there always. That, that's our true nature. So if yes. we can tap into that always, I, I understand that desire for wanting these things, it's not there as much as, as what it would be. Materialism is its own epidemic. Yeah. And... I I just don't want to, I don't want to perpetuate that. Yes. And I'm sure for some people listening, this brings up questions around privilege. I'm someone who could consider spending three grand on the purse, but this is fairly widespread. There's lots of us who don't have cash in the bank and go into debt for the purse. There's lots of people in different cultures and levels of income who have their symbols of status that they are working so hard to get in order to impress people who haven't even considered loving them unconditionally. Like we all have our ways of playing the game of material symbols to validate worth, which is just masking our unhealed self, (laughs) right? And I just don't want to contribute more stuff to a landfill, really is what it's getting down to. You touched on forgiveness before, and I know that's something that's quite predominant in the Buddhist teachings. I'd love to speak about that for a bit, because I know that can be so hard for so many people. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, in your life, where you've ever felt betrayed or where you felt hard done by, but also in quite a strong way, how you felt the strength or the ability to forgive. I didn't always want to forgive. There's still times and things I don't want to forgive. And I ask for guidance to be more forgiving. First of all, I'm not as critical of myself when I have a difficult time forgiving. So I used to think, oh, this isn't very evolved. This isn't very loving. This isn't, and that just creates more tightness and binding. It's like, ha, I'm having a hard time forgiving. And then you kind of exhale and you realize, you get to that place of like, but I do want to forgive. Then you go back. I have no idea how to forgive this person. How is this even possible? I do want to forgive though. And there's a little more, a little more buoyancy that happens, you know? So asking for guidance to change my thoughts around something has become a practice. This is a teaching from A Course in Miracles. Mm. You just give the Holy Spirit indication that you are willing and the Holy Spirit will come in and help you. And how that help arrives is you start to think higher vibration thoughts Mm. that move you towards actually forgiving. Another revelation that's been super helpful for me is I firmly believe that the soul wants to forgive. It's actually our default. And now I've kind of made it this habit when someone comes to me and they're in this spine and there's, oh, you know, we got into this argument and I can't believe she did that. And as soon as there's a pause, I say, 
but don't you really want to forgive her? <laughs> Come on. You know, <laughs> Come on. I know you do. I know it's in there. You want to be over this. Yeah. And the impulse is usually like, oh, totally. It would be great. But then here it comes. There's the big butt. But she said, and they did. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But just go back to that nanosecond where you just felt that softness of, oh, it'd be so great to just get on with things. Mm. Just stay there a little longer, just four seconds longer. Imagining, this is mind training, by the way. Imagining how sweet it would feel for your nervous system, for your day, for the relationship to actually just move on. Can you stay there another 10 seconds? Because if you can stay there another 10 seconds, you will start to think different thoughts. Mm. And then the tone of your voice will change. Your behavior will change. And you actually start to embody forgiving. You actually move on. You mentioned something before that you used to do a bit, and I feel like I used to do it a bit as well. And I definitely try to not do it as much anymore. And again, it's a, a teaching, a course of miracles. I will judge nothing that occurs today. And I think that's so beautiful, but it can be challenging for a lot of people. And I wonder how you have moved through that in your life. I'll tell you the most surprising thing for me with the response to how to be loving is this one little phrase I put in the book as a practice people can do where someone really pisses you off or they do something that triggers you or something that you feel you have the right to judge. And you just say, oh, I've done that before. Mm. That's it. That's an act of love. You just found some common ground. You just actually loved your past self and this person's current self. And you relax a little bit more. Oh, I've done that before. And maybe it was a long time ago because you really, truly, legitimately have grown and you're so much more evolved now. But just, oh, I was that. You relax. Mm -hmm. And you don't even realise with judgment sometimes how you'll be in your own head walking down the street or something and you're just judging, 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 first perceptions, bang, judgment. It's interesting when we become conscious of our actions, our words, our thoughts, which I always say is, is being spiritual is the act of being conscious and then choosing, obviously, the more loving way of life. But when you're conscious, you realise, wow, the amount of judgment that is happening even in this one hour of my life is extraordinary. I might read an email and I'm judging that. So I really believe that trying to live as judgment-free or loving in that space makes such a difference on our day-to-day -day activities and the way that we show up in the world. Yes, it's a brilliant point. Judgment, constant judging, which I think you're right, so many of us are doing so much of the time. It's such an energy drain. Oh my God, think about how much energy we'd all have. Mm. Be like seeing solutions. We'd be seeing how much alike we are. Or we could just make clear choices. No judgment, but I'm not going to participate. I'm going to go this way. Yeah, I'm for it. I've heard you say that how I'm being today is going to be how I see tomorrow, which, I mean, I completely understand, but I'd love to dive into that a bit. Well, your actions and behaviors today are charting your course. Mm. So you're going to pay for it or you're going to reap the benefits. It's going to be 
met. Energy follows thought. Mm. Like attracts like. So what you're radiating today is going to come back to you in either a continued way of thinking within yourself. One negative thought you have perpetuates more negative thoughts from you. Here's this crappy thing I I think about myself. Well, here's another thing and another thing and a reason. And here's all these validations of these crappy things. One positive thought sets your nervous system at ease. You'll think another positive thought. Well, there's another thing to be grateful for in my life. Or here's another person that validates my theories about beauty or everybody being good. Yeah, you're creating a reality with your thought system to a huge degree. When you say that, it reminds me of teachings I I learned a long time ago with Abraham Hicks, and they talk about how shame is the lowest form of vibration that we can have and always about moving to that better feeling thought. And then there's the scale of the different emotions and how they'll make us feel. I completely agree with what you're saying because there is that loop, that cycle, that even the rumination, if we're thinking about something that's really gotten into our psyche and then it'll just perpetuate into this negative dance that we're having and our whole day can be ruined. But for people listening, it is about trying to move to that better feeling thought. And I know for myself, when I was first starting out, I used to have something think of something that I really like. So it could be a job, my kids, whatever it is, a a person, something that if I moved my thought to think of them, then that would be a loving, happy thought for me. And so anytime a negative thought would come up, I would automatically move to that, that loving, higher feeling thought. And over time, the way that our brains are wired with neuroplasticity, your mind just goes to that better feeling thought. And next minute, that those negative thoughts, yes, they'll come up here and there, but you don't have them coming in at 100 miles an hour like you used to. So I'd love to hear what you use in situations where you feel that negative thoughts are coming up and how you move to that higher, higher feeling one. Well, what you're doing when you shift to thinking about your children is you're moving into the heart center. Yeah. You're interrupting those patterns. And the more you do, it's like we are addicted to negative thinking. Mm. It creates a particular response in the brain and in our bodies where we, we kind of get this energy rush. It's There's a hook to all negative thoughts. And the ego loves it. Ooh, I'm right again. Ooh, I get to be divided again. I get to be more than. I get to be better. I get to be less than. I get to be insecure. All those things. So the ego just keeps showing up with every negative thought. And this is a whole kind of methodology. It's an art and a science. And I just call choosing loving thoughts. First of all, I have to recognize that I might have to work on choosing a loving thought 900 times a day. Mm. I can be sitting here at my desk feeling like, wow, I've really got it going on. I'm feeling one with the universe. So much to be grateful for. I feel useful. Mm. From the time I get up from my desk and walk into the kitchen to put on the kettle, I just be thinking like, oh, it's all for shit. Here's all the reasons I'm disconnected. And this is where I'm not being as evolved as I can be today. So I have to choose the loving thought in that moment. I think there's some characteristics to loving thoughts, Mm. truly loving thoughts. One is you have to believe it. 
This is really important. And this is where I take affirmations to task. Yes. I think if you are saying something, I love being wealthy. I love being skinny. I love being in love, whatever it is. And you're really not in that reality. So you're lying to yourself. I think it's kind of got a toxic effect. Mm. And it's just creating more kind of fragmentation in your psyche. It's not an integrity. So choose a loving thought that you can believe. Maybe the loving thought is just, I love being healthy. And you might be seeing yourself in the future being healthy, but that is a more gentle, believable, resonant thought. I'm so looking forward to being in partnership. I'm so looking forward to more prosperity. Maybe you can't even get there just feeling so low on things. Your loving thought might be, I know so many people who have created prosperity, but you do it from this heart-centered place. It, it is truly affirmative. Not, I know so many other people have created prosperity and I haven't. So you got to believe it. And it's not rebellious. Loving, nourishing thoughts are not a screw you to the system. They're not a punishment to those lower vibration parts of yourself. So you're not saying, I am so capable of being prosperous. Mm. You know, you're flipping it to the system. You're going to say the same thing, but from this inclusive, gentle place, I am so capable of being prosperous. And in that, you're speaking that to yourself and to your higher guidance. You're not speaking it to anybody that you're trying to prove anything to. Very different energy. That's so beautiful and very useful for a lot of people. What is the best advice that you have ever been given? Oh, I got it. I got it. I can tell you in one. Okay. Let me give the, just, I'm going to give you one second of context on this. Best advice I've ever been given from the most, quote, spiritual person I know, from the most powerful energy healers on the, I think on the planet. <laughs> that was a bit of an exaggeration, but who told me, take breaks. Mm. That was it. It's not some esoteric, metaphysical anything. It's just the most human, loving, gentle counsel. Mm. Take breaks. Beautiful. Changed my life. Yeah. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Oh, the lesson that's taken me to take breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> Gentleness. It's funny when I ask these questions, people often say that. It's the wisdom that they've learned has taken them the longest to learn. I love that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite prayer saying or mantra? Yes. My favorite prayer, which we practice all the time and heart-centered, is the Metabhavna prayer. And I love it because... So metta, M-E-T-T-A, means loving kindness, and bhavana means practice. The story is that the Buddha was practicing with all of his monks in training, and the monks are basically complaining about how difficult it is to become enlightened. And he gave them the metta bhavana prayer, and the legend is they came back enlightened. But there's a whole other layer to this, which I just learned recently from my friend Susan Piver, who's a great Buddhist teacher. 
that those monks were practicing in different communities. So they were all in different temples or different parts of the forest or different hoods. And they were all under some kind of duress in their practices. With some monks, they were in temples where the other monks were like banging on pots to interrupt their meditations. There were stories of one community they were in, the the neighbors created this terrible stench to like run the monks out of town. All this interruption and conflict to their spiritual practice. They stayed true, continued the Metabhavna prayer. And not only did all of those interruptions and that strife go away, but everybody who was getting in their way actually became the protectors of these monks. They held space for them. They protected them from harm. It's such a beautiful story of love really is transmutational. It really goes the whole way. And I love this prayer because it's inclusive. You pray for yourself, you pray for others, and you pray for everybody. Mm. So everybody right now, think of who you're going to pray for. It could be a group of people that you are in opposition to. It could be someone who's passed over. It could be your beloved. It could be a community. And then when we get to where we pray for everybody, that's everybody everybody's in past, present, future, and it includes the animals. Okay. So it's so simple. It goes like this. And you might, you know, if you want to hold your hands somewhere for prayer, I always keep my hands on my heart. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be free of suffering. May I be free of mental anxiety. May I live in peace. May my life be blessed with ease. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be free of suffering. May you be free of mental anxiety. May you live in peace. May your life be blessed with ease. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we be free of suffering. May we be free of mental anxiety. May we live in peace. May our lives be blessed with ease. And give thanks in full face, so be it, and so it is. Metabhavna. Oh, that's beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? Reverence is the word that comes to mind. I just love what I can, when I can, as it is. And I see the value in that. Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. And thank you for all the beautiful tools, the prayer. It's been really lovely to chat with you. Thank you. Oh, likewise. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. 
For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new listener app now and listen for free.